the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he is a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, the story that we're in, the church historically is celebrated, it's called Epiphany. If you come from a low church background like I do, you never heard about that. Uh, it's more associated with uh, people that appreciate the historic nature of the church and realize that we weren't just invented in uh, the 20th century, uh, but that we're rooted historically. And so after Christmas, we celebrate Epiphany and we ponder and consider the wonderful, beautiful, crazy truths about Jesus, uh, that his glory and light has come into our world because what we live with so much during the week is a lot of darkness. And so we come this morning uh, remembering that Christ indeed has brought life. Uh, we're entering into that journey through the lenses of Luke, who was kind of an academic type. Uh, interestingly, Luke was a Gentile, uh, he likely was one of the first converts when Paul first went to the church in Antioch, and he became pastor of the Philippian church. So if you have ever read the book of Philippians, he pastored that church and is mentioned in that book. Uh, but on Paul's third missionary journey, he took up with Paul, and that was kind of his entry point into time with the apostles where he was able to research their eyewitness accounts, and so we're stepping into it. Uh, 
Luke is also the gospel that mentions to a great extent, Matthew as well, but Luke probably just as much, uh, to help Jews who would have been religious insiders to understand how Jesus actually is the fulfillment of everything they'd been taught, but they had quite easily missed. So God used an outsider uh, to help insiders discover the truth about the gospel. So if you're an outsider or insider uh, this morning, we hope that we all might enter into a fresher picture of just who Jesus is in this season of Epiphany. Uh, We're in Luke chapter 7. We've not started in chapter 1, but kind of bring you up to speed. I'll have to go back to some of what Luke has already covered as we step into this story. Luke gives the most press and background to John the Baptist and his engagement with Jesus and his involvement in the kingdom of God coming. Uh, So as we discover the truth about Jesus, we're doing it against the backdrop of John the Baptist's life. We'll look at three things for those of you who are note takers. How is John the Baptist's expectation of Jesus different Then Jesus shows up, that's verses 18 through 23. How is John the Baptist's expectation of Jesus different than how Jesus shows up? What's the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus? That's verses 24 through 28. What's the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus? And then the final section, verses 29 through 35. Why does it even matter? Uh, It really greatly does, and Luke is going to help us step in and understand it. So before we step back into the passage that Shay read so well for us, uh, let's consider Luke's treatment of John the Baptist. Luke opens his gospel uh, introducing an orderly account, but the first story he tells about is not the birth of Jesus, but it's actually about the birth of John the Baptist. His father, Zechariah, was serving in the, the temple when the angel Gabriel appears to him and announces to him this really crazy news that he and Elizabeth, who are too old to have babies, that they're going to have a baby. But they're not just going to have any baby. They're going to have a baby that fulfills Isaiah's prophecy of one who would prepare the way for Messiah. And so the unique nature of who John the Baptist is is spoken into his being as even before he is conceived. Interesting thought there. Uh, And he tells Zechariah and Elizabeth uh, that he will be a Nazarite. He will be an unusual kind of man in how Israel functions. Uh, He would never drink wine, and he wouldn't eat like crazy either. He would take a vow that would set him apart for his unique purpose before God. Uh, Shortly after that, well, actually six months after that, the angel Gabriel also appears to Mary and announces to her that she shall have a son. This is Jesus, the son of the Most High, who will be the fulfillment of what was promised to David, that there would be a son of his who would reign on his throne forever. And as proof that his his truth and his message was true, he points to Mary's relative, Elizabeth, who is much older and says she's six months pregnant even now. To verify the angel's message because it really threw Mary, but she accepted and said, I'm the Lord's servant. She travels to her, her relative, Elizabeth, and discovers that what God, the angel Gabriel had said is actually true that Elizabeth, too old to bear a child, was bearing a child. And when she came to greet Mary at the door, the Holy Spirit, which was residing within her on the son in her womb, John the Baptist, leapt at his introduction to Jesus. 
uh, Mary believes more fully that the angel Gabriel had given this message that Jesus would, in fact, be the one that Israel had always longed for to sit on the king of David. And John the Baptist would play that unique role of preparing the way for the people of Israel to respond to this one. When John hit the scene, it's 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Uh, Herod is ruling, Pontius Pilate is ruling, uh, and so the political waters were extremely tricky. And so instead of heading to Jerusalem, John went to the wilderness and somehow got arranged for the people of Israel increasingly to respond to John the Baptist. Uh, and it's puzzling because he didn't go to a seat of power, but it's puzzling too because his message was so, so difficult and harsh. This is how he would win friends and influence people. He would say, you brood of vipers, as he's looking them in the eye and calling out the ways they're not walking in obedience before God. The crazy thing is, the people on the outside of the kingdom of God within Israel responded to his message, and people on the inside couldn't stand them, probably because they were too much alike. John had a ministry like a prophet of condemnation to help people see their sin, but if they would respond with soft hearts to them, they would come and be uh, dipped in the water, sprinkled with the water to be baptized to show that they were taking on the first step of, of conviction for their sins to be ready for the Messiah that would come. After John baptizes Jesus and God announces in a loud voice from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, People had wanted John to be the Messiah. He clearly knew that he was not. And when he heard the words from heaven, he and all that, heard, that were witnessed the event knew as well that Jesus was actually the Son of God, the Messiah, come to rescue the world. Shortly after that, John had preached repentance to Herod, and it did not go so well. Herod had taken the wife of his brother, throw up a little, uh, and married her, and because John stood out against, uh, preached judgment against him for his sin, Herod threw him in prison. And now as we enter into the stories about Jesus of which we stepped into the past couple of weeks in John chapter 7, the centurion's servant who was saved, the widow's dead son who was raised from the dead, uh, that's great and good, and John hears reports like that of what Jesus has done. But John is still in prison. And though he is moved by the works for others, he's not experiencing Jesus' move and deliverance of himself. And so he sends two of his followers, his disciples, because as boldly as John had declared this, this was the Messiah, the Son of God, now that he's living in imprisonment and not experiencing the deliverance that he's hearing that Jesus is accomplishing for others, he starts to doubt, just like you and I do, when God has not come through in delivering us from the circumstances that we so wish we could escape. And so John sends to his, his disciples and says this, are you the one who has come? Now, he had declared it boldly before, but because his expectation that Jesus would come is different from how Jesus actually comes, he begins to doubt. And Jesus goes right to the prophecies of Isaiah 
John the Baptist was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, and when it goes to uh, Messiah, there are proclamations that Isaiah makes that the dead will be rise, lepers would be healed, the blind would receive their sight, the lame will walk, and Jesus is evidencing the chief characteristic of the Messiah personally by overcoming the powers of darkness in people's lives. But John the Baptist wants him to do it politically as well. You see, John the Baptist was all over personal salvation, but he wanted deliverance from the enemy who was oppressing and imprisoning him. And just as we also desire for God to come through and deliver the thing, deliver us out of the situations in our lives that we wish would be so different, Jesus often comes in ways different than we expect. And so at the very end, as Jesus goes to the prophet Isaiah, he leaves this with this other prophetic reference in verse 23. And blessed is one who is not offended by me. John was offended because Jesus coming for him did not deliver him from his life situation and did not exhibit himself as a political ruler that John thought he must come as. John also preached law. John's like the fulfillment of all the Old Testament law. He's preaching judgment for repentance. Jesus is coming along, connecting to that teaching uh, in real and powerful ways, but Jesus is coming primarily, demonstrating compassion and healing and grace. Some of us struggle there too. Not only do we struggle with an expectation of Jesus that says, you've got to deliver me from my particular life circumstances, I don't understand why, but some of us struggle as well because we tilt towards law instead of grace. And John was struggling in that very same place. When I was in graduate school, the first round, (laughs) I sat with a professor who was a church history professor, and he really uh, made Reformation theology not just sound right, but beautiful. And I was with a, a ministry organization that emphasized a lot more of the judgment side or the doing side. But all of us had to admit real honestly that what we were teaching really wasn't working all that well for us personally. And so one guy was bold enough to ask the question. He said, Dr. Hannah, how do we really change? Because everyone in the room realized uh, that the change that they th- we thought would happen in our lives was not coming through. And Dr. Hannah said this. He was channeling an older saint, but he said this, and I'll never forget Look at your sin long enough until you become sorrowful over it. And I thought, I'm not sure I've done that before. Maybe I did that in the very beginning, but I'm not sure as a Christian, I've looked at my sin long enough to become sorrowful over it. And then he said, and this is what took my breath away, and then take 10 looks to Calvary. And then take 10 looks towards Calvary. Look at your sin long enough to become sorrowful for it and then take 10 looks to, to Calvary to be assured of Jesus' grace and power and salvation come for you. Some of us by temperament or orientation or background tilt towards law 
and judgment. If you tilt towards law and judgment and stay there, you miss Jesus. But if you hear the voice of John the Baptist that brings you to real repentance and then look ten times towards Jesus, then you get Jesus' grace and compassion and power in your life. How's John the Baptist's expectation different? He tends towards law. Jesus is, is tilting powerfully for us to get him by his grace and his healing and his power. Uh, but what's the relationship between John and the Jesus? John has a very valid role, uh, and as John's disciples uh, moved to take back the message that they got from Jesus about him to John, uh, John addresses the crowd to show he's not demeaning John. Uh, he's saying the ministry of John was vital for the coming of the kingdom of God. But you've got to understand his purpose and the difference in who Jesus is. Look at verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? That, that, there have been a lot of reeds shaking in the wind and the desert. Uh, that would be ridiculous. Everybody knows they're there. Why would they do that? That's absurd. Verse 25. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. He said, well, that's equally ridiculous. Uh, people who have luxury, people who have power don't go into the wilderness as well. Uh, that would be absurd. John blew the categories of how power worked in that day. But then he says in verse 26, What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Oh, yes. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. He's saying John essentially is the climactic prophet of all the Old Testament prophets. And then he goes to Malachi chapter 3, which is uh, Malachi's prophecy that an Elijah-type figure would come. And he says in the middle of verse 26, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is, is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, he puts John on a very high pedestal. He says, there's not been a man born among women who is greater. He is the climactic prophet of all the line of prophets in the Old Testament. He is preparing the way for a Messiah that would come. He is pronouncing judgment in a way that would soften people's hearts in repentance so that they would be ready for the promised king that would come. John's office and role and probably his temperament as well was all prophet. And he was important and necessary in filling the Old Testament message that is connected to Jesus in the inauguration of his king and what we read together and see together in the New Testament. But Jesus is coming not just as a prophet. He is coming, we went here last week, he's becoming as a prophet and a priest and a king. Uh, John, crazy prophetic, major judgment, leading to conviction of sins and alienating others. But Jesus comes, he is a prophet, but he's also coming as a priest and a king. We see his priestly aspect as he comes and steps into the hardship in people's lives and allows his compassion to pour in to deliver and bring healing. Uh, 
he is a king encountering the forces of evil in the world just as a picture and a foretaste of a greater power that would be exerted one day to come when his kingship is fully known. And he does fulfill the role as prophet as well as the people recognize when he raised the widow's son from the dead. John comes as a prophet, the climactic prophet, so the Old Testament line of prophets in that manner has now been completed because Jesus has shown up to fulfill the prophetic office, but also the the office of priest and also the office of king. Jesus is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, and king. Uh, The business analogy of what this might look like would be the difference between Steve Jobs and Tim Cook. If you know anything about Steve Jobs or study, have seen the movie about his life or read the book about his life, he was a relentless innovator. He was a prophet-like kind of character who drove his people hard, had incredible vision, but was toxic in his effect on people. Uh, The comparable one we've got of that today is who? Elon Musk is fitting right in that category. He was the first one that did what Apple does so powerfully to bring the technology innovation so that Apple could be built into a new company. But Tim Cook, I, I heard this on a sports talk show when I heard that Greg Sankey, the SEC chairman, I know this is ACC country, uh, but had traveled out to Apple's headquarters to learn leadership from Tim Cook. Tim Cook is not a technology innovator. He is a person who leads his business with people first, effective strategy, and implementation. Tim Cook is more balanced. Steve Jobs was crazy prophetic. Uh, in those, don't take this any further than I'm taking it, uh, just, just to show the difference between John the Baptist's role and Jesus' role. Interestingly, though, for you numbers people, uh, Tim Cook saw when he took over Apple, they were valued at $348 billion. They're doing okay. Uh, it's now valued at $1.9 trillion. See, Tim Cook did what Steve Jobs could never have done, just as Steve Jobs had a really unique role in Apple's growth. So in the kingdom of God, God used John the Baptist to bring the people of God to repentance so that insiders, if they would soften their hearts, but even outsiders could step in where they had felt shoved off so that Jesus, the prophet, priest, and king, might come to bring God's kingdom more fully in more flourishing kinds of ways. Uh, Here's our takeaway, if if I've not lost you yet. (laughs) Uh, The mode of each believer is to do life and engage the world as a prophet, priest, and king. Here's the problem, though. By our temperament, we're heavy-footed in one of them. And we, we tend to lead with lead feet uh, in one particular area that diminishes prophet, priest, and king that caused Jesus when his first coming to exert those offices of prophet, priest, and king with gentleness, truthfulness, in love, and savvy for the culture that he was in uh, so that Uh, He would represent the kingdom of God 
in its already not yet fashion, but all the while knowing that one day uh, the not yet will become already. You see, Jesus did not come primarily as a political king, but one day he will. And he calls us as individuals, but he also calls us to, together collectively as the church to evenly reflect his kingdom coming as a prophet, priest, and king. Uh, this applies to your parenting. This applies to how you do life and fun. And it applies to how you do business in your different callings in life. Jesus calls his church to represent his kingdom as prophet, priest, and king. And he calls each believer to walk gently in exhibiting prophet, priest, and king, though we are hardly ever balanced. <laughs> the only time we're balanced is when we're swinging from one end of the pendulum to the next. But progressively, we walk with humility and prophet, priest, and king in the spheres of life that God calls us to, and he calls his church to adopt that posture as well. Am I making any sense? A little bit. We can talk more about this. We, you know what might be a fun life group question tonight, if, for those of you who are gathering? Where, where are you heavy-footed? Prophet, priest, or king? To see how you might need to be balanced out by other people in your life group or other people in your family to more gently model Jesus as prophet, priest, and king in the domains and the spheres of influence in which you function. How's John the Baptist's expectation of, Je of Jesus different? John the Baptist went law, Jesus went heavy grace. What's the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus? John was a prophet, Jesus moves as prophet, priest, and king and calls his people to function in that manner as well. And then finally in verses 29 through 35, why does it even matter? Uh, look at the last words of Jesus uh, in reference to John in verse 28. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, highest of honor, honoring the prophetic role that John served. And then it's like he tosses it upside down and says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Look at the response that Luke inserts afterwards to see how people reacted to the reality that Jesus is embodying and telling. Verse 29, when all the people, that means people without power, and the tax collectors, they had power but used it scandalously. But here's the crazy thing that you would not naturally expect. They declared God just. Whoa! When they heard off of Jesus' lips that there was none greater than John, but even John is like least in the kingdom of God, instead of like, how does that work? Instead, their hearts and their minds were softened. Their breath was taken away in the upside-down nature of Jesus' kingdom. They responded with soft hearts towards Jesus' message, but look at what people with power did, religious power and otherwise, the religious power is focused on here, uh, verse 30. And the Pharisees and the lawyers, that's no lawyer joke, that's like experts in the Old Testament law, rejected the purpose of God for themselves because they had not been baptized by him. 
Why does it matter? Because how you respond to the truth about how Jesus steps into our world is either soft-hearted, takes your breath away, or hardens you in either, and uh, how you oppose Jesus coming as prophet, priest, and king. And then Jesus takes the Pharisees and the experts in the Old Testament law to task. And he says, you're like children. And he's not using that in a favorable <laughs> example here. Look at verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance, like a wedding dance. Uh, we said a dirge, like a funeral, and you did not weep. And he says, for John the Baptist has come eating no, uh, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. <laughs> He's speaking again to John's difference than him. And you, you, and you say, look at him. Uh, uh, verse 34, the son of man, however, has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him. A glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. He turns the tables upside down on who really is a child of God. I have a great aunt who died uh, this past uh, fall. She was turned almost 96, just shy of her 96th birthday. She was from Augusta, Georgia, Brandy and I have talked about her. Uh, she, for 30 years, worked for Georgia Power Company. And when they act, power companies actually sold appliances that electricity served. And she was like the best salesperson ever at a time where women did not enter that market. She'd not had enough challenges, so she decided, I'm not making much, much of a commission off of these sales, although she's doing really well. So she says, I need to find a new market. And in the mid-70s in uh, Augusta, Georgia, there were actually no women who did residential real estate. And all of a sudden, her skills in sales translated over into real estate, and she began to be one of the top producers at a time uh, where no women served in that field. Uh, she beat out the top salesman in the area uh, who actually was in her firm as well. And he gave her a hard time all, always because she was rivaling the area where he was thriving. And so one time in a meeting, this was told at her funeral, he said this. He said, Carolyn, I, th I think you have a problem with men. Carolyn said, no, I actually don't have a problem with men. I have a problem with people who act like little boys like you. She's a little spicy. Jesus, maybe not quite as spicy, but a little bit, is saying the same thing. Those of you who think you, you have it, got it figured out spiritually, those who hold religious power are actually like little children. You're acting like a little boy or little girl whose playmates don't do as you wish. And what that childishness evidences is a hard heart towards Jesus because those who are softened by him declare God is just, and verse 35 says, and wisdom is justified by all her children. The people without the power are those who are welcomed in because their hearts 
are softened towards Jesus. Uh, Luke wants us to see uh, that though Jesus came as an outsider, uh, he was treated with great disdain. Uh, while his coming should have brought dancing, it was a pronounced by the religious leadership as a funeral dirge. Uh, Jesus longs for us to see that he comes for not insiders, but outsiders to melt our hearts with the power of his grace as our prophet, priest, and king. Let's pray. Spirit of God, uh, would you check us? None of us are balanced. All of us are heavy-footed in ways that might harden our hearts towards Jesus. So would you soften us? Uh, would you use other people who are heavy-footed in different areas of prophet, priest, and king and ways uh, to make the power and grace of Jesus sweet to our taste, sweet to our souls, so that we might believe the good news and might be transformed from natural-born orphans to children of God. We pray that you would do it, and as we come to this table, that you would nurture that in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.